Well, I uh, always love this time on Wednesday nights, and I hope uh, that this evening is going to be helpful. Uh, I think it's going to be helpful because I want us to think a little bit about how we can benefit from the Old Testament. And I want to give you uh, a basic method or at least some ideas. What do you do if you're going to get something from the Old Testament? Uh, because we've taken, you remember, the last few weeks to uh, sort of introduce the Old Testament, and we ask questions like, who wrote uh, the Old Testament, and why should we study the Old Testament, and what is the Old Testament, and we looked at the story of the Old Testament, and we kind of summarized it in six sections, creation, fall, promise, Israel, exile, restoration, which is a start to understanding the Old Testament, because obviously uh, you can't understand the details of a picture unless you uh, get a glimpse of the big picture. But there are a lot of details in the Old Testament. And so I want us to go a little further and uh, think about how do we get something from those details? How are we supposed to read and study the Old Testament? When we open it up in the morning or in the evening or whenever we open it up to read it, what are we supposed to do exactly? Not necessarily to teach or share a message, but just uh, in our devotions. If we're going to get something from it, what do we do? How do we have devotions in the Old Testament? And I thought that uh, I could begin with just uh, real quickly with some uh, very general principles, and then uh, we'll try to get a little more specific and talk especially about uh, how to understand narrative or how to understand story. But first, uh, one key attitude if you're going to benefit from the Old Testament and a couple key commitments. One uh, key attitude, and there are a number that I could highlight, obviously, of course, but let's just focus on one key attitude, and that's humility. If you're going to benefit from the Old Testament, you need to approach the Old Testament with an attitude of humility. And I want to talk about humility for a minute because that's a tough one for us in general. Uh, most of us feel like we're kind of humble because we really like our own opinions and we never argue with ourselves. But when somebody else tells us something, all of a sudden we're a little less humble and we really struggle with being humble. And I think we struggle with being humble when it comes to reading the Bible and especially the Old Testament in at least uh, two ways. Uh, one way that I often talk about is that we can be very self-centered when we read uh, the Old Testament. And that means uh, that we um, really want it to be talking about us all the time and get bored very quickly if we don't think it is. So Abner Chow uh, is a professor up at the Masters University. And he, uh, he, he always says, imagine going to dinner with a friend and um, saying, all I really want to talk about is me. And so if your friend starts like talking about something else, you're like, no, I don't think so. I, I really want to talk about me. Um, or imagine taking your spouse out on a date and saying, I am so interested in what you have to say about me. Please just talk about me. Or I remember hearing about a professor who spoke for an hour. And then he said, OK, that's enough of me talking. Now, how about you talk about what you've learned from me? Um, we would never go to a movie and come away thinking it was a bad movie because it wasn't about us. 
And yet we can have a difficult time paying attention to the Old Testament because it's not always immediately about us. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever had a relationship with somebody across cultures. Um, so if you have a relationship, try to have a relationship with someone across cultures. And it's not just culture, sometimes it's also educational background or even socioeconomic status. But if you try to have a relationship with people across cultures, a lot of times there's barriers, like there's a language barrier, but there's also just stuff you're interested in. So uh, you're, you maybe grew up doing one thing, having access to one sort of thing that's fun for you, and they don't even know what you're talking about. And so sometimes when you're talking to someone from a different culture, it's honestly a little boring and kind of awkward at first uh, because you um, don't know uh, the right words to say, you don't know what they're interested in. And because of that, what happens is a lot of people give up. They don't, they're just like, you know what, I'm not gonna try to cross cultures. Or a very common thing that people will say is that it's too hard. It's too hard to have relationship across cultures. But it's not really too hard because it's not actually very hard at all. It just requires patience and humility. You have to be like, maybe there's something I could learn from that person if I listen long enough and ask the right questions, and there usually is a lot that you can learn. It's like one of the most beneficial kinds of relationships there is. And the thing is, the same is true with the Old Testament. We can learn a lot about our lives if we come humbly to it and sit long enough to listen to it, even when immediately it doesn't seem to be first about us. A second way we struggle with being humble with the Old Testament, though, is that we sometimes assume kind of deep down that we know better. So if we're going to benefit from the Old Testament, we have to be humble. Uh, one thing that means is that we have to be willing to listen for a long time, even when it's not immediately about us. And another thing that means is we have to watch out for this kind of superior attitude that we often have when it comes to uh, the Old Testament. And, um, Sometimes we can read the Old Testament and feel like we sort of know better, partly because we're living in a time that doesn't value the past a lot. So uh, we tend to think of things, assume that things that are older are less significant. If somebody says, I have a really good book to give you, and it's 30 years old, a lot of times we'll be like, no, I, I want a fresh book. I want a new, I want something new. Um, and, and so it's kind of like how, when it comes to the past, it's kind of how, like how a lot of Americans view the world, honestly. Um, so there are Americans who view the rest of the world as being behind us. And so when we travel somewhere else as Americans sometimes, and we find that things are nice or better, it can be surprising. And uh, we're like, wow, it's really nice over here, like it's shocking. Because we tend to think of America as more advanced. And of course, I mean, sometimes that can be true, but a lot of times it's not. And the same thing uh, can be true when it comes to the past. We can just assume the present is better in every way than the past, like obviously. And that's because sometimes we think better technology equals advanced thinking in every area. 
And so we look back and we assume that we're the ones who are obviously superior. And so the Old Testament, we can come to it as if it were kind of primitive. If you look at the way many people view the Old Testament, it's like they've got this long line in their minds and they're at the head of it. And uh, so they look back and they're like, the ancient Near East, they're really primitive, they're really backwards. And then the Old Testament is a little better. And then they move forward and the New Testament is even better and here we are, we're the best. And so we kind of stand in a superior position to the Old Testament. And yet, of course, the ironic thing is that the reason we can even kind of look down on what's in the Old Testament is because of the values we receive from the Old Testament. <laughs> so we wouldn't even have those values without the Old Testament. And that kind of attitude of superiority creates an obstacle to benefit benefiting from the Old Testament because you you really usually have a hard time learning from something you feel superior to. And so, of course, as we read in the Old Testament, we know the people in the Old Testament were living a long time ago, and many of them, they didn't have as much revelation as we do. And so there are things that in the Old Testament, because we have more revelation, we know are obviously wrong, like Solomon having all those concubines or whatever. But on the other hand, what God's communicating, what God's teaching and doing in the Old Testament is not below us or something that we have the right to stand in judgment on. When we rightly understand it, it's going to stand in judgment on us. And so I come, uh, you know, two examples. One, a, a really obvious one. I come, for example, to what the Old Testament says about idolatry. And idolatry doesn't necessarily feel like that big a deal of, sin, of a sin to me. But when I read the Old Testament, I see that it is a big deal to God. People die because of idolatry. And so what happens then is that the Old Testament shows me that my attitude towards idolatry is wrong and clearly needs to be tweaked and aligned with God's. And so one essential attitude to benefiting from the Old Testament is humility. And that humility is going to work itself out in a couple key commitments. And the first is to be continually asking God for help. So if there's one thing the Bible makes clear, it's that we shouldn't depend on ourselves. We are needy. And God wants us to learn to look outside of ourselves to him. Much of the Bible is written to teach us to depend on him. And that is the basic starting point to benefiting from the scripture. Whenever you read it, ask God for help. And we need help because this is God's book, which of course is part of what makes it a challenge because when we open this up, we've got God talking. And God is talking about the most important subjects in the world. And so it's obviously gonna be deep. You've never had a professor who's smarter than God. And even if God is stooping down and using human language and human authors and human concept, he's still somehow communicating his concepts through them. And so those are going to be big thoughts for us to think about, of course. But the good news is that God is willing to help us understand his thoughts. And so as we read, we have the author with us, ready to help. And we need to continually to be, be depending on God as we come to the Old Testament. You see this in the Psalms, Psalm 119, 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. 
Psalm 119, 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And that's not magic, of course, because asking God for help doesn't make it easy to study your Bible every time. But we have to start there. Humility is going to ask God for help. That's one commitment. But not only do we need to be committed to depending on God if we're going to benefit from the Old Testament, we also need to be committed to analyzing and thinking and meditating. The Old Testament requires thought. It requires thought. This is a second key commitment that you're going to make if you're humble. Now stick with me because this seems so obvious, but it's not obvious. It's not, I promise it's not obvious to a lot of people who say they're Christians. And a lot of uh, preachers don't make it obvious. So if you come to the Old Testament pridefully thinking you can just get it without having to think, and wrestle, a lot of times you're going to get it wrong, which is a challenge for a lot of us because I found as a pastor, if there's one thing people want from me, it is answers quick and simple. People want me to give them, like, how do we disciple? Three steps. How do we deal with money? Five, five principles. People like their answers quick and simple. If somebody asks me a question and I start telling a long story, they're like, are you kidding me? And we get uncomfortable if something seems a little confusing. They're like, pastor, that's confusing. And you can understand that a little because as we read the Bible and talk about the things in the Bible, we're talking about the most important subjects in the world. And so we want to know what we're talking about and we want to be really clear about it. But... When it comes to the Old Testament, the problem is that the Old Testament is, is written in a way that doesn't give you answers quick and simple like that. And sometimes we think that's a problem with the Old Testament or that's a problem with us. We're like, I guess other people just understand it more quickly and I, I'm just not the kind of person who can understand the Bible. But it's not a problem with the Old Testament and it's not always a problem with us. It's actually part of the design of the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament, you have to understand, much of the Old Testament is written to force you to think deeply to understand it. I was saying to my children the other day, you guys get to be a human. And part of the glory of being a human is that God's given you the opportunity to think big thoughts. And the Bible is written in a way that forces you, if you're gonna benefit from it, to have to think hard for a long time. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And that word meditate in the Hebrew, one man says, it's, it literally means to mutter or to speak quietly. And so the idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly are reading the Bible out loud to yourself and then going and talking about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making the connections and discovering what it all means. And so he calls it Jewish meditation literature, which is a funny way to describe it, but he's saying, the Bible is written in a way that requires reading and rereading and rereading 
and rereading and thinking and puzzling and making connections. And so you have to come to the Old Testament humbly wanting to learn. Again, I think I was telling my kids on Monday, it's so cool to be them like they can read the next, the Bible for the next 15 years, you know, and 15 years from now reading the same things over and over and over again, they're going to know stuff, but it's probably going to take a process of like 15, 20 years of reading and rereading and rereading and rereading, getting a little, getting a little, getting a little, thinking, 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 and then coming to a better understanding. I heard someone say the other day, if you're going to learn, you have to learn. So this is, I wish I, wish I could just, learning requires learning. So if you're not willing to learn, if you have all the answers before you come to the Bible, then you're, you're not really going to benefit from the Bible. You might as well not even read it. <laughs> no, you should read it. But if, if, you're, if you're thinking, I'm going to come to this passage and I'm just going to understand it all before I even read it and think about it, <laughs> what are you doing? How's that, how's that supposed to work? A lot of these stories in the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament's written just requ it requires learning. It requires... I mean, I feel like for me, it's a constant process of putting something in, it falling out, putting something in, it falling out, and over the years, slowly but surely, a couple things stick in there, and I understand something, uh, understand something better. And so we don't know, we don't throw everything out every time we come to the Old Testament and say, "Be like, I know nothing." Fortunately, but we do come to passages a little dumb. We're like, "I'm dumb. <laughs> I need God to teach me." And so I've got to look at this thing for a long time, read it, and say, hmm, that's, that's different. I, 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 don't, I don't know what that means. And to go away and maybe not know the answer right away and meditate on it a little while, which requires humility, which requires humility. If we're going to benefit from the Old Testament, we need to be humble and pray and be willing to think. That's one key attitude and two fundamental commitments. Now, three basic presuppositions we have to have when it comes to studying the Old Testament that are important. And the first is that the Old Testament might be, you might be challenging, you might have to think about it, but it was written to make sense. So when I open up this book, I believe it was written to make sense. Now, like I said, it's, I didn't say it was written to be easy or it was written to be simple, but it was written to make sense. And what I mean is that in the Old Testament, God's communicating a message through human words in a way that humans can understand the meaning, not magically or mystically, but using the basic tools he gave us for communicating. And I think that's pretty obvious as we look at God speaking in the Old Testament, he assumed people could understand. And so for example, Genesis 12:1. now the Lord said to Abraham, go, to from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And what did he expect from Abram once he said that? He expected what he, that he would understand what he meant and go. Um, and so that is really obvious, and I probably don't have to multiply examples, but if you even just think about Israel, God makes a covenant with Israel and holds them accountable to that covenant, which means... He assumes that he communicated that covenant in a way they could understand according to the normal ways that human communication works. And that's why he 
not only expects they obey it, he also condemns twisting it or perverting it. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul talks about the word of God, and he says, do your best to prevent, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, which means you can wrongly handle the word of truth, and if you do, you should be ashamed. And part of what brings shame is that you can't understand the scripture. And I'm not saying always, and I'm not saying in the same way across the board, or that every passage is going to be as easy as every other passage, or that you'll always have the same amount of certainty that you understand everything as much as you do some other things, but that doesn't mean you stop trying or that you can't understand. People are funny about the Bible sometimes because they're like, well, we, we, we um, sometimes have different interpretations. We struggle to understand, so that must mean we can't understand. But you don't do that with other, uh, other relationships. You don't do that when you communicate with your wife, hopefully. You're like, we miscommunicate with each other all the time, so I guess we should never communicate. Or we can't understand each other. No, we keep trying. And if communication is hard for us, human to human, why would we expect that God to human would be easier? We won't always get it right. We won't always understand everything God's saying. But we still believe it's possible. The Old Testament was written to make sense. That's one presupposition. A second that should be obvious, but isn't always, is that the author should get to say what he wants to say. So the author is the one who determines the meaning. So he is the one who determines what he was intending when he wrote whatever he wrote. And we can figure that out because the author is using language and words and the typical ways that language and words work. Which, again, that should be like, ah, no, no brainer. But my daughter was telling me the other day in one of her classes, one of her Bible classes, someone was saying the reader gets to determine what the author means. Um, but I was telling her, uh, and she was telling him, the person who said that, nobody works that way in real life, not even the person who said that. We all assume people should try to figure out what we mean when we say whatever we say. And if they get it wrong, maybe we didn't communicate it as well as we should, but they got it wrong. They're not right. Your kid, uh, you tell your child to go to bed at 9 o'clock, and they go to the uh, refrigerator, and they get an ice cream bar. And you're like, why'd you get an ice cream bar? And they say, because you said to go to bed at 9 o'clock. You, you, you don't say, that makes sense. You say, that makes no sense. I said, go to bed at 9 o'clock. And your child says, well, to me, that means get an ice cream bar. And you don't say, well, that, OK, that's valid. That's valid. You say, no, you don't get to take my words and make them mean whatever you want them to mean. They have a meaning, and I'm the one who determines that meaning. And so as you come to study the Old Testament, you remember the Old Testament was written to make sense. The author gets to say what he means. And the final presupposition is that understanding what God is saying to us today through an Old Testament text begins with understanding what he was saying first to the people that text was originally written to which again is normally kind of obvious to us, normally. So if I write something for someone, it's for that someone. If I write a love letter to my wife, someone else can't pick that up and say, oh, pastor loves me. No, that letter is for my wife. But in the Bible, we have something interesting going on in that the authors were writing to a certain group of people 
in certain times for certain reasons, but they also were writing for us, and the Bible itself tells us that. Think about Peter, where he talks about those prophets who came to God and said, hey, I want to know, I want to understand what time um, the Spirit of God and what person, the Spirit of Christ, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, and it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And so this was written for them and for us. And yet, if I want to understand what it says to me or to us, I have to first understand what it said to them. So if I want to understand the relevance of Joel chapter 3 for me, what do I have to understand? Where do I have to begin? I have to understand what the author was saying first to the people that he was writing to in Joel 3. That's a presupposition and an important one. The meaning of any passage of scripture is found in that passage of scripture first. Later passages might help you understand the meaning better, but they don't change the meaning. And whatever meaning you're going to get from that passage for your life is going to be connected to the meaning of that passage for the original audience. And so that's what we need to figure out as we read the Old Testament if we're going to benefit from it. We have to understand, okay, what was the meaning for that original audience? Um, and that makes the study a little bit harder, which is sometimes why our sermons on Sundays feel a little long and we're going back to the past and all of that. But we do that because then we're actually getting the meaning. That's the only way we can actually get the meaning for us. And um, we might wonder, well, how do I do that, get that meaning when I'm having devotions? And um, this is probably where we need a whole course on studying the Bible. And they have those. It's called hermeneutic, hermeneutics. Um, and there's actually a, a, a good, simple book in the back called Living by the Book with a workbook. That's a, a great, simple um, discussion of hermeneutics. And I can give you some other suggestions. But while those books are helpful, uh, the basics aren't too complicated. And so even if you haven't gone to school for a long time to learn them, you already know a lot of what it takes to understand the Bible because you have spent a lot of time in your life already trying to figure out what other people mean by what they say. We do this all the time. We do, we're always communicating and we're hearing people communicate and that means we've been interpreting communication for most of our lives. And some of us are better at it, and some of us are, are worse. Some of us are notorious for missing what people mean. Some of us are a little better. But we all do it. And if we just applied some of the basic principles that we use to understanding anyone, and we worked at applying those principles when it comes to hearing from God in the scripture, it would go a long way. A lot of misinterpretation in the Bible happens when people do things with the Bible that they would never do with anybody else. They would never allow communication to work that way with anybody else. But suddenly, when it comes to the Bible, they're like, it's a magical book. I can, I can do whatever. I can take one word and just make it mean whatever I want it to mean. When we would never do that with someone else. Or we would never pick just like one little paragraph out of a letter that somebody, a history book. You know, We never pick one little paragraph out of a history book about Japan and be like, well, that means I should, uh, you know, like, no, you have to understand, like, when that was written, what it was written about. There's, and the Bible is a book like that. It's, it's literature. It's literature written by God, but it's literature. It's a form of communication. And so 
we work at understanding God's communication here with some of the same tools we use for understanding others. Um, and there are obviously going to be certain things about understanding the Bible that make it particularly challenging um, because it's so old, it was written in another language, written by so many people, it's long. But the basics are pretty straightforward. So what do we do if we're going to understand the Bible? First of all, we have to open up our Bible, figure out what we're reading, and look at it. Look at the thing. In other words, you have to observe. You have to ask, what does the passage say? And this is why I hardly ever read the Bible, even devotionally, without a pen in my hand, because I'm always trying to make observations. Because before you can know what anything means, you have to make sure you've seen what it's saying. And this is super obvious and surprisingly challenging and yet really helpful as you get better and better at it. I have a few people that I look to when it comes to the Old Testament because they're so often sharing fresh insights into the Old Testament. And yet, when I look at what they're actually saying, the reason those, they're, they're getting those insights is just because they're sitting down and looking at the text and noticing things that are so clearly there. For example, I mean, these are just obvious ones, but that's part of the point, I suppose. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through, through 3. I was reading someone recently. Uh, it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. And so, one of the things you would do if you're ha having devotions is you would just look at the thing. You would look at that, and you would say, what's going on there? There are, um, there's a, a request by Moses and Aaron. There's a response by Pharaoh. And then there's another request by Moses and Aaron. And then you would look at the two requests by Moses and Aaron, and you would say, okay, do they say, what do they say in those two requests? Do they say the same thing? And then you would look at the first one and you say, well, Lord is in capitals. I know uh, that means Yahweh. So they say, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. You're like, that sounds like a celebration. So Yahweh is saying, we, we want to celebrate in the wilderness. Then Pharaoh's like, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know. And then they make another request. And what, do they say the same thing? Well, no. Now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very different. The God of the Hebrews. So it's not Lord anymore. It's not Yahweh, which we know is the personal name of, uh, of God. It's, it's the covenant name of God. Now it's just a generic word for God. And it's not the God of Israel. It's the God of the Hebrews. And if you look up, oh, when, did they, when does he use the word Hebrews? You'd find that's sort of the way that Pharaoh talks about them. And then they say, please. So they, they, it's, not, it's not so much a command, let my people go. Now they're like, 
please let us go. And then they say not to celebrate, but to sacrifice. And then they offer a warning. Like, the reason we want to do this is if we don't do this, God's going to fall on us with pestilence or with a sword. And so what you do is you're just observing, and you're looking at these two speeches, and you're starting to notice, wow, those, are, those sound very, very different. I, and then you're just going away, and you're thinking. You're like, I wonder why Moses would, why would they, what caused them to, it's like they took a step down. When they first started, they're like, thus says Yahweh. This is who he is. Let us go. And then Pharaoh's like, I don't know him. And Moses is like, okay, the God of the Hebrews, he wants us to go sacrifice or else he's going to kill us. And she's like, oh, I'm trying to understand what made that switch in, in Moses's, Moses's mind. But that's, that's part of what you're doing. You're, you're, you're observing. Genesis 11. You're like, Pastor, tell me the answer. No. Think. Genesis 11, 1 through, 1 through 9. This, you know, this is the Tower of Babel, or you could say it's the Tower of Babylon. And we're not going to go through this whole thing, but just to observe. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar which is going to be fun because bitumen is a pretty specific word only used a couple times. And the other time it's used is when we get to Exodus and Pharaoh is making the Israelites use bitumen. But anyway, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you see, okay, these guys are motivated to make this city. You're just observing. And the reason they're motivated is they want to make a name for themselves. And then you read the story and you finish it and you're like, what was their name? We don't know. And then we find out what is the name of their city that they made? Who names the city they made? God names the city they made. And what does he name it? Confusion. So here these guys, want, they, they got this great plan together. They're going to make a name for themselves. We don't even know their name. And the name of their city is like a shameful name, like Confusion. Then we go to Genesis 12, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And as we're reading just our devotions, we're like, I think I heard a great name before. Oh, I look back at that story right in the one before, and I see all these people being judged because they're trying to make a great name for themselves. Now, I know the name. I don't even know their names, but I know the name of this old guy from wherever, Ur, or Abram. I know his name. And I see God promising to do for Abram what they were trying to do for themselves. He's going to make their name great. And so then I'm starting to think. I'm starting to think, oh, I wonder what that's trying to teach me about life and about how salvation and about how God, about God, how God works. Another, this one's probably harder to find, but, and I had to get help for this one, but Genesis 27, um, 13, this is the story of Jacob and, Arne, yeah, and Rebecca, Isaac and Rebecca, but um, Rebecca trying to get a, uh, telling Jacob to, um, to lie, basically, to get the blessing. And um, Jacob, this is the thing with Jacob, he's always trying to, to take things into his own hands, and he learned it from his mom. 
And his mom tells him, no, he's worried. And his, mo his mom says to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So the mom says, I'll take your curse. And then, you know, you keep reading, and one interesting thing happens um, is that you don't, you don't really read about Rebecca very much anymore, except at the end of Genesis 27, where you read that she's saying that uh, Jacob has to flee away from her. And she says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. So she hates her life. And then there's no more Rebecca until Genesis 35, 8, where you read Rebecca's name one more time, and it says, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. And then you think, that's weird. Like, wait, this is the servant of Rebecca, and he's telling us about her funeral. And that makes you think, did I ever read about Rebecca being buried anywhere? And the answer is no. You don't read about Rebecca being buried anywhere. And so it's almost like the author is saying, do you remember Rebecca saying, taking things into her own hands and saying, let that curse be on me? Where have you seen her since then? Nowhere. And then what happens? We get to read about her servant being buried, but Rebecca doesn't even get, her death and burial doesn't even get mentioned. That's kind of what happens when you try to take things into your own hands. And these are, are really just illustrations of how when you read the Bible, that one of the hardest things is just to observe, like just look at the thing. And if you're doing a serious study, you maybe would get out a notebook and you'd start writing those observations down. Um, but even if you don't have time to do that every day, um, like in terms of like getting out a notebook and answering all the big questions, you can learn to do this at least a little in your devotions. And you can start by just looking at what you're reading over and over again and thinking. And maybe you're like, I can't do that. I'm not that good at making observations. I need help. And I understand. But one place you can start is by noticing the parts of your Bible that aren't inspired first. And that sounds funny, and you're like, oh my goodness, is he about to teach heresy? No. But there are parts of your Bible that impact your reading that aren't inspired. Do you know what those parts are? The titles of the books, the chapters and the verse numbers, and the order of the books. All of those were added later to help you as a reader by wise people who wanted to make reading your Bible easier. And so I heard someone say, every Bible is a study Bible. Because every Bible has these helps that we barely notice, but do influence us. And so one thing you can do as you study the Old Testament is notice them. So what does a title of a book do? A title of a book sets that book apart from other books. It gives you an idea of what the book is about. It can recommend the book to you, and it can tell you what kind of book you're reading. And so if you're reading Exodus, you can think, why did they call it Exodus? How does that help me understand it? How might that not help me, actually? 
How might calling it Exodus not help you? Well, um, it's only the first, you know, 13 chapters, 14 chapters of the book, the Exodus. And Exodus is 40 chapters. So you, you know, I think it's a good name for the book, but you could call it Tabernacle. How would that impact your reading of, of, of Exodus? Um, or the order of the book. I'm reading Judges, and I might say, uh, well, I'm reading Judges. Where is that in my Bible? It's after Joshua and before Ruth. And then you think, why is it there? Why would, why would uh, they, why do they think, and it's there everywhere. That's, that, that is in every, um, every ordering of the Bible that we have anywhere. Joshua and Judges are always together like that. Ruth is not always after Judges, though. But Joshua and Judges are always together. And so you think, okay, I wonder how that influences it. And it makes sense. Joshua, God keeps all his promises, makes Judges pretty sad because you're like, these people. Um, some books are always in the same place, like Judges. Um, but there are other books that are in different places in the Bible, in different Bibles, and that can help you, like Ruth. So Ruth is after Judges and before Samuel. And you can notice that, and you can think, why did they put it there? Can you think about why they would put uh, Ruth after Judges and before Samuel? Well, the first verse of Ruth is, um, in the days when the judges ruled. So, okay, it's like happening during this time. And then what's the last word of Ruth? David. Did you say David? Yeah. Yeah, king. But David, same basic idea. So it makes sense here because the next book is Samuel, which is actually... Samuel is only in the first few chapters of First and Second Samuel, so you might wonder, is that the best name for Samuel? Like, could it be Samuel, Saul, and David? Could it be, could there be another name? But anyway, as the book of Samuel is a lot about David. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is actually after um, Proverbs and before the Song of Songs. And so you can notice that and think, I wonder why they might have put Ruth after Proverbs 31. Um, so it's probably because you've got Proverbs 31, this description of the virtuous woman, and then you get a pretty good illustration of what she looks like with Ruth and Song of Songs. But anyway, that's something that we can notice. And then the verses and the chapters, they came later to help you as well. Um, I hope this isn't like overwhelming. For me, this is fun. It's just new things to think about. Um, I know sometimes when I give a lot, then sometimes people can feel like that's overwhelming, but it's supposed to be fun, like different options of things to meditate on. We're not, it's all a journey, like we're all, not all going to know everything right away. Just, we're all in a constant pursuit of understanding more clearly. But the verses and the chapters, um, they came later, um, after the days of Jesus, and basically what they do is separate sections to make you think, or they join sections to show you connections, or they highlight certain material at the beginning to draw your attention to it. So that was some guy who's trying to help you. And sometimes you got it right, sometimes you got it wrong. But one, one example where you might think, did he get it right or did he get it wrong, is Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So Genesis 2... 1 to 3. Wow, I'm not going to get through all this today. But Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Why might you think Genesis 2, 1 to 3, he got it wrong? It's, that means wrong in quotes. But why do you think, why might he get 
Why might have someone thought he, you could do this differently? Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Yeah, so it's the seventh day. And then after that, it's this new account of the Garden of Eden. So you might think, well, why didn't he put the seventh day with the first six days? Or you could think, huh, he obviously did that for a reason. I wonder what he thought the reason was. Like, I wonder why he might have done this. And perhaps one reason he did that is because the seventh day is the climax of creation. We usually think of man as the climax of creation, but actually the seventh day is the climax of, re of creation. This is what creation's goal. And then you kind of get the illustration of what it, that rest would look like in the Garden of Eden with man and, and God dwelling together. And so anyway, even if you don't have a study Bible, the point is it's kind of like you have a study Bible. And you can kind of have fun with this. If we had more time, I would have you do this by like thinking about Genesis. What other titles could you have for Genesis? Or by thinking, why does Genesis come first? It's not too hard of one, but how would it impact Genesis if you put another book before it? So what if you put Job before Genesis? How, would that, how could that possibly impact your understanding? Or what if, and this is never the way it is for a reason, because Moses wrote the first five books as a, there's a good reason to think it goes Genesis to Deuteronomy. So that's, Moses wrote it as a continual flow. So that's not random. But what if you put Exodus before Genesis? How would that kind of impact your reading? What would that do? That's one thing you can notice. Uh, but then if you're doing your devotions, another simple thing you can do to help you as you observe, to help you observe as you're reading the Old Testament is look for things that repeat. So I'm just giving you different, this is not a full hermeneutics class, but just some different ideas. So a, a lot of the Bible is other parts of the Bible. I'm sure you've noticed that. Sometimes there'll be whole passages um, that are quoted somewhere else. Um, other times it will be words and then other times it will be ideas. And then a lot of times it's stories that seem very similar. You're like, I think I read this before, but it's a little different. And some people have thought that's a problem with the Bible, but that's actually part of the genius of the Bible. Um, first of all, because it's like that because it was written to people who were listening. And so obviously um, that was just a help for them to be able to understand and keep track of what's happening. But second, they repeated to make a point and make sure you got that point. And so one way the Bible does that is by uh, repeating key words. And so there are certain words or phrases that go throughout a story or a book that cause you to stop and think. And so uh, Genesis 22 has has one of those, but this is just an illustration. There's a lot, of, a lot of them, and this is something you can do in your devotions, is just look for uh, repetition. Obviously, if we all could read the Hebrew, that would be even more amazing, but a good um, like literal translation, like the New American Standard or the ESV, will often try to help you by using the same word. So Genesis 22.2 says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Then Genesis 22, uh, 
12 says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Genesis 22, uh, 16, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And so then you just get a chance to meditate. What is he, why does he say that same description three times? What is he wanting me to, uh, what is he wanting me to feel as a result of this? Um, uh, First Samuel has uh, uh, another example. First Samuel chapter three, verse one begins. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And then you read this whole story about Samuel. And then you come to the end, uh, verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And then verse uh, tw 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And so oh, you, you, as you're having devotions, you notice, oh, this word is repeating. At the beginning, there's no word from the Lord. And now, Samuel's taking the word of God everywhere. And so like, oh, what this story's trying to tell me about how this, how, how this happened. Uh, another interesting one in, 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 in Samuel is, um, and this is kind of an illustration of one of the things you do when you read stories, but it's um, the way that they often describe Saul. So if you go to 1 Samuel um, 13, verse 22. So there's a couple things we could talk about the way they describe Saul, but this is one that I hadn't seen until a couple years ago. But So um, certain occupations, you can tell those occupations just by what they wear. So if I see somebody in a white, I don't know actually uh, what, it, what they wear, so I should be making this up, but one of those special, uh, those pants, that I don't even, they're like scrubs. And they have a stethoscope. Oh, yeah, they have a stethoscope around their neck. What job do you think he probably has? Yeah. Mechanic, exactly. That's <laughs> obvious. But probably a doctor. I love the smart Alex in class. Um, so he's probably a doctor. Stethoco stethoscope represents a doctor. So Samuel's about a king. And you might wonder, OK, if there was a something that would represent a king, what would it be? We might think a crown, or we might think a spear or a sword. And so as we start to look at Saul, one of the things we see throughout 1 Samuel is that over and over again, he and his son, they're the only ones with a spear. So 1 Samuel 13, 22, so on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So they're the only ones with a sword or a spear. 1 Samuel uh, 18, verse uh, 10, um, now it says, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. Um, verse 11, Saul hurled the spear. 1 Samuel 19, verse 9, um, Saul's got, he's sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. You just, it's just a kind of a funny picture. He's on his lazy boy with his uh, spear in his hand. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Verse 33, um, 
Saul hurls his spear at David. First uh, Samuel chapter 26, verse uh, 7. Um, Saul is sleeping with the spear stuck in the ground at his head. Uh, verse 12, Saul takes the spear, uh, David takes the spear away from Saul. First Samuel, uh, verse 31, 4 and 5, says that um, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And then one last one, 2 Samuel 1, 6. The young man who, who was talking to David, he's pretending to have killed Saul. He said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. So it's almost like every time we see Saul, we see him with a spear. That's one kind of king. And then we looked at the other David, and what do we find? Do we, we never find him with a we see him with a harp. <laughs> he, doesn't have, he doesn't have a spear. And actually, the, the text really makes a big deal out of this. 1 Samuel 17, 38. Saul clothes David with his armor. He puts a helmet of bronze on his head and clothes him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then you remember, of course, Goliath is like, ha, ha. You know, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's like, where's your sword? And then when David finally kills him, he's like, um, or when he's, David, when he's speaking to Goliath, he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies whom you have defied. So David's specifically saying, I don't come to you with a sword or spear. And so one of the things you're starting to just think, you're like, oh, I wonder if this book is trying to teach me about the kinds of a king that we need. Like we think we need a king like Saul, the typical king who's, who's represented by military might and power, when what we really need is a king who trusts God and worships. But again, that's a, a different kind of repetition, but uh, repetition. Sometimes uh, the, there's key words that repeat, and then sometimes it's uh, stories that repeat. Um, Women at wells, there's a lot of them. Barren women, there's a lot of them. Uh, Abraham uh, letting his wife get married to somebody else happens at least twice. His son does the same thing. And the sto stories repeat, and that's not an accident. So that's the thing. It's to help us. And, and the way it, part of how it helps us, one way it helps us is by, we learn by comparing and contrasting. So we get familiar with something, and then we contrast it with something else, and that helps us understand it better. And God does that in the Old Testament. There are things that happen, and then there's something that seems to happen again. And what you're supposed to do when you find that thing that happens again is you're supposed to go back to the other story where it happened before, and you're supposed to say, I wonder what's the same, and I wonder what's different, and I wonder what that's supposed to say to me. So I, in my devotions this week, I was reading um, 1 Samuel 1, which was about the birth of Samuel. And then I had just finished reading the book of Judges. And the last judge in um, that book is Samson. And that made me think, oh, wow, you know, there's, there are some similarities between their births. And so I got Samson out, and I got uh, Samuel out. And I said, what are the similarities between Samson and Samuel's birth? They both had barren. Uh, mothers, they both have uh, kind of surprising, miraculous births. 
and then there are some differences. And then what you do is you just start meditating on that and you start thinking, I wonder what those similarities and differences might mean. I wonder what it's trying to, to indicate. But you have to start with seeing them. You have to start with seeing them. Another simple thing you could do to observe is uh, just think, what do I need to see or what would I be seeing if I was actually there? So this is just trying to put yourself in the original recipient's sandals. Um, this week, someone helped me with this. They were talking about when Jesus came into the, um, from down from the Mount of Olives. So you're up on the Mount of Olives, you're coming in Jerusalem, um, you see the temple, Jesus is coming down and the crowds are going crazy. And there are a lot of people who are like, well, those crowds that went crazy that one day singing hallelujah, then the next couple days they're wanting to crucify him. But if you put yourself in the shoes of Jesus and you look at the, the route, what happened is he goes into the city and then this person was just saying, they were actually showing um, uh, the layout of Jerusalem at that time and the route that Jesus took when he was there. And they were showing that where Jesus's trial was held was basically held at night in like the gated community of Jerusalem. So it was like held, not really gated community, but it was held in the, 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 the rich, politically connected, this is where all the rich people lived and all the um, Sadducees lived and all the politically connected people lived. And so the crowd that would have entered Jer Jerusalem with Jesus on that day was likely a very different crowd than was there that night, that early morning with Jesus's, uh, who were yelling out to crucify, crucify Jesus. Just because if you put yourself in the shoes of how it actually happened and sort of try to walk along with Jesus as it happens, where it's located, you start to realize, oh, this is not some place that just massive groups of poor people are going to be hanging, hanging out. Um, and I'm not doing all the work of do teaching Bible study methods here. I'm just giving you some um, different ideas of what to look for when you're having devotions. Um, and next week, I guess I didn't get through it all, but next week we'll talk about how to read, um, we'll try to apply this to actually uh, stories. Um, and then maybe do a little geography, and then we'll finally get into the Pentateuch. But maybe I can just conclude by saying, when you're having devotion, sometimes you don't just try to notice the details, um, but ideas. And so you can just look for, what is this passage saying about God? What is this passage saying about people? What is it saying about salvation? What is it saying about the Messiah? But... Um, First, 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 first observation. You have to look at the thing. Oh, I guess I didn't even get through the all four, did I? You have to ask what it says, what it means then is the next step. How does it apply? And then how can I change? So um, smack the Bible, but don't really smack it. But what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? How can I change? And obviously, you only have so much time when you're having devotions before you get started your day. But you've got a lot of days, unless the Lord calls you to heaven, and then it's even better. But you got a lot of days, so one day you just work. Let, let me try to observe. And then throughout the day, if you can try to remember, you try to think about what that might mean. And then the next day, maybe you can work a little bit more on 
what does it mean and how does it apply? Um, but this does take work. I understand that it takes work, but I mean, we're not cows. We get to be people. We get to have a relationship with God. And this is part of how we commune with him. So we don't just have to eat grass and think about getting slaughtered. You know, like, we, I, don't know, I don't know what cows think about. We actually get to think about, like, oh, God. <laughs> and and uh, how God is at work in this world. And it's, it's, it's part of, you know, part of how we change is just by thinking these thoughts. So we don't always necessarily get the answers right away, but as we're meditating on truth and wrestling with it, blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night, slowly but surely, as we're thinking about these things, we're not thinking about other things. <laughs> we're thinking about real substantial things. And God uses that uh, to help us get closer and closer to Jesus. But thanks, guys. I was going to even show you a little video tonight. I had a whole big plan, but then, sorry. Um, any questions or thoughts? I hope it's helpful. Um, yeah.